How are all of you doing this morning? Doing well? Yeah. Not sure how many of you who are here follow the Rugby World Cup. Any rugby supporters there? No? Oh, man. Okay, yeah. There we have. There at the back, Eric. Yeah, and it was a good week in the Rugby World Cup. Not so good for Canada, though. We, we got beaten really badly by the All Blacks. But South Africa, which is the main team that I'm supporting, are doing well. So I'm happy this morning knowing that, that uh, my team that I'm supporting is advancing to the quarterfinals. But I'm more happy here because of the fact that we are already on the winning team with Jesus, right? Like, uh, it's not about the Rugby World Cup. It's not about all the things that can distract from what he has accomplished for us on the cross. So uh, this morning I want to dive into a text which uh, is just going to hopefully uh, break that even more open for us uh, in our lives as to what exactly Jesus came for and, uh, and what he did for us by dying on the cross, but not just dying, but uh, also being raised from the dead. Before I jump into this morning's text, though, uh, I quickly want to give you a recap of where we ended previously in the series uh, out of the Gospel of Luke, which is the Skeptic's Gospel. And uh, Glenn has been preaching out of the Gospel of Luke, um, I think, over the last year and a half now. Uh, we're making great progress. We're at chapter 12 and coming to the end of chapter 12, so that's fantastic. But through the Gospel of Luke, we get a picture of, of course, who Jesus is uh, through the eyes of someone who comes from a skeptical background, perhaps because Luke was a physician, a naturalist, uh, a scientist, we would say. Um, we saw that at the end of Luke 11, for example, Jesus is invited to attend a luncheon with a couple of super religious people, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the lawyers of the day. They know the laws of God. They know uh, the Ten Commandments, of course, and all the Levitical laws. But together with that, they have over 300 laws that they're trying to adhere to and try and keep and say, hold on, we are the perfect ones. We are keeping these laws. So in today's time, they would be regarded or seen as those people that have got the best outward appearance, the best moral values, and they look like they've got it all together. They are the ones that on the ski slopes, they've got the best equipment. They've got the arcteric stuff. They are kitted. Uh, they look like they are very intimidating. They can go and take on any glacier. They can go and take on any situation, and they will be able to do it. But as we will see out of that part uh, where Jesus is in that situation, he becomes an awkward guest because he's at lunch with these guys. They're on their deck. They're having a couple of IPAs. They're barbecuing. They're looking over the Mount of Olives, sort of like here as you're looking out over the chief. And all of a sudden, he becomes super awkward by calling them out on their hypocrisy. He basically tells them, yeah, listen, you can do all of these things on the outward part of your lives, but inside you guys are dead. Like there's nothing going on inside. You are like cups that are clean on the outside, but inside it's filthy dirty. And so they kick him out of that luncheon, right? Like they're very cross with this guy who comes and tells them all of these things. And so Jesus huddles in his disciples after that. And he says, hey, guys, just bring it in. Let me just give you a lowdown of what exactly is going on there. And he tells his disciples just very shortly, I'm going to summarize for you the following things. He says to them, listen, watch out for these guys. Watch out for the super, super religious elite. They are hypocrites. And their hypocrisy, if it infiltrates your lives, 
It's just like a little piece of leaven in bread. It spreads everywhere and it will infiltrate your lives or your lives. He tells them, do not fear death. You don't have to fear these guys. You don't have to fear the ones that can only kill the body. But he says the one that you have to fear or have to fear is God. Fear him who has the ability to cast you into hell forever or have you with him in heaven. He then challenges them to say, listen, stand up for me in front of others. You need to acknowledge me before others. Because if you do not acknowledge me in front of men then the Son of God will not acknowledge you before the Father one day on Judgment Day. He tells them, don't be hoarders. Don't gather for yourself just stuff and think that that is what life is about. But he says the real stuff that we need to hoard are the treasures in heaven. And those are the souls that need to hear the gospel. Those are the people that need to come to faith in Jesus in order that their sins can be forgiven. He tells them, stop worrying about the future. I will take care of you. And then lastly, before we get to this part, he tells them, watch out for the signs of the times, the end of the world. There are certain things that will be an indication for them and also for us as to when the end of the age will come because there will be an end of this life and this age and this world. So in a nutshell, that is what Jesus tells them after that luncheon. And then he moves into this passage, which I want to submit to you can be perplexing and confusing to many people at times. But I want to say that the reason for that is mainly because of perception. Perception is the key because perceptions are created through various means in our lives. But perception is not always reality. Perceptions do change. I believe a great example of that is, is marriage. You know, when John and I met, John is my wife, my beautiful wife. Uh, she was just here. I think she uh, took up our, our little baby girl up to kids' church. Um, but we met 17 years ago. I was 19 years of age, and she was 18, first year university. But when we met, man, there were really interesting perceptions that we had of each other. That evening that we met, I perceived her as maybe a little bit nosy because she was asking really straightforward and, and uh, intimate questions such as, okay, what do your parents do and, and uh, you know, where did you go to school? And it might not seem very intimidating to you, but I came from a town that was renowned as sort of like this redneck town. You didn't really tell people too loud that you were from that area. Okay? Luckily, she didn't know much about that town. But when she asked about my parents, I had to say, well, okay, a year ago my dad died. And then she was like, oh, did I really ask that? And then about my mom, I had to tell her, well, you know, my, ma my mom uh, suffers from schizophrenia and she's had this disease for almost 40 years. And, and so immediately it was like, oh, what's going on here, right? And uh, my perception of her was that, but she had another perception about me, like a, a mysterious perception. And I was able to, to create this persona of like, I, I looked like I had it all together. I had my, my doorman and uh, a jacket from university. I was walking around and, you know, this party guy and I had it all together. But, you know, inside there was a lot of insecurity, a lot of hurt. But as our relationship grew, as we started dating, I got to know her more. And better, I realized that there was more to this girl 
than just uh, what, what met the eye. And, um, and also the same for her about me. She started slowly but surely see the layers come off of me. And I want to submit to you this morning that it is the same way with God. As we grow in Him, as we get to know Him more as our Lord and Savior, we come across things that change our perceptions about Him and also about life. Now, I want to ask you this morning, you know, what are the things that are shaping your perceptions about Jesus? Is it the Word of God? Or is it the culture, media, TV, movies, music, experiences, people? Because all of that will have an influence on how we view Jesus and what he has to say to us. Now, I want to illustrate perception again by putting up two images quickly there on the screen. Many of you have maybe seen this before. I used to do this with students in school. On the left, you have this image that you can see there are two pictures in that image. Okay? If you've seen this before, you know what I'm talking about. There is a young lady. If you look, you can see the young lady. She looks away. She's got a small little nose. You can see her eye, eyelids. Okay, you see her? Okay, but there's also an old lady. She's, she's got a really big nose and a really long chin. Okay? Can you see her? You can see both. Okay. And on the right, you've got a duck. But if you just turn your, your head a little bit, you can see that it's actually also a bunny rabbit. Okay, so perceptions change when we look at things differently. Now, I want to throw other pictures on there as well about Jesus. On the left, we have peaceful Jesus. We have Californian, uh, Swedish-looking, blue-eyed Jesus, surfer Jesus, who is always hippie-looking and hippie-happy with everything that we do, and he won't say anything hard to us. That is a perception that people might have about that Jesus. But on the left, we have this piece of art where Jesus is there with his, uh, his whip, and he's cracking the whip. In that scene where he's in the temple, he's clearing the temple because the people were basically making, as he said, the temple a den of robbers. But how often do we view Jesus on the left as our main Jesus? That's the Jesus we like. That's the Jesus we want to worship and the Jesus we want to give to people uh, as opposed to whip-cracking Jesus. Okay? And so those are examples I'm going to put out there this morning of things that shape our perception about Jesus. But thankfully, by the grace of God, this morning, we can have our perceptions that we might be sitting with here today. If it's not the reality of who Jesus is, we have the word of God. So let us turn to Luke 12, verse 49 to 53, and read what Jesus says. And before we do that, let me just pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for this morning. Uh, Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and uh, worship you and to look upon your face. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to look upon your word and uh, come and pray. Holy Spirit, come and reveal to us yourself. Come and reveal to us, Jesus, uh, what you are teaching out of, out of this passage. And come and help me, Lord. Um, Lord, may my words and the meditation of my, my heart be in line with your, your will and your kingdom this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, Luke 12, verse 49 to 53. It's entitled there in the ESV, Not Peace, But Division. 
Jesus says there, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Outline this morning, as opposed to dividing and conquering or first divide and conquer, upside down kingdom, Jesus conquers and then divides. So let us dive into that. That first part, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptized baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Let's just first stop with, I came. First thing that I want you to note here this morning, if you're new, or maybe you're new to Christianity, maybe you're exploring Christianity and this faith, or you're spiritual, you regard yourself as spiritual, I want to submit to you this fact that Jesus came. God came in the flesh as Jesus Christ. That's a fact. History shows us that. The perception might be created, though, in our lives and in culture that there is no God. That everything that we can see around us, everything that we experience, all that is just a mere consequence of a random natural selection, random natural evolution. It's called the atheistic worldview. Another perception that is created in our culture today is that, you know what, everything is God. The mountains is God. God is uh, the trees. God is the forest. God is the ocean. Uh, in fact, you are God, and you can determine everything that you're going to accomplish. You're in control of your destiny by just speaking it. Speak it out to the universe. The universe will respond to your positive uh, things that you say and do, and you will then get that in return. It's also called New Age worldview. Another perception that can be created is that it's not possible to know God. You're not sure. That is more of an agnostic position where you say, well, it's not possible to know. I want to ask you this morning that if that is a perception that is maybe describing how you view life or view Jesus and view spirituality, I want to challenge that. And I want to encourage you to challenge that perception and question that perception that you have with what it says here about Jesus. There is no other worldview in the marketplace of ideas, religion, and faith like Christianity. Christianity is the only worldview that gives us a proper logic and reasonable solution to why we are here where we are going, how do we determine what is good and bad or evil? What are we destined for? It's the only worldview that gives us a proper answer. And the reason for that is it's in the answer of Jesus. The reason for that is all other worldviews, it's all about what you need to do. 
Whereas the Christian worldview is not about what we did, but it's all about what God did through Jesus who came. Look at what it says in John 1, verses 1 to 3. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Further on, John says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that is God, the Logos, becoming flesh, dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus conquers by showing up. Okay? He came. Heaven came down. And that is how he conquers. By being with us. Now what does that mean for us? What does that look like for us? I believe that just as Jesus showed up, we can already start seeing things change in our life and conquer obstacles and conquer things by just showing up, showing up to Jesus first, showing up in our minds and in our hearts and showing up to hear what he has to say. Many times our greatest victory and achievement that can be reached is just merely by showing up, showing up here. For many of you sitting here today, just by being here today and hearing his word, God is already doing an amazing work in you. So he conquers through coming and through the fact that he came. But he wants us to, ex us to experience that as well. To experience his victory by showing up. Now let's move on to what he says next. Because this gives us an indication of why he showed up. Why did Jesus come? He goes on to say, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. This is the part that I want to submit to you. It looks a little bit, at face on face value, it looks intimidating. It looks apocalyptic. It looks pretty dramatic. It looks sad and bleak. It, it seems like Jesus is saying here that he's just basically come to bring judgment. And we get that out of various references out of the Old Testament that refers to God's judgment that comes in the form of fire. But I want to submit to you that if we look to it closer, it can also illustrate to us God's presence and power through fire. So in other words, I want to quickly look at two views of the scripture. If we look at the judgment part of it, if we see when Jesus says, I've come to cast fire on this earth and how I wish it were already kindled. You know, I could paraphrase it in this way that Jesus is actually saying, hey, I wish the wrath of God has come and that's the purpose I've come to bring it. But I wish it had already started. And that sounds very, very intense. But we need to look at where that comes from. So I want to quickly refer you to Genesis 19 verse 24 because that will give us an indication of how we can come to that conclusion. In that situation, we see that it says that the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that were characterized by extreme sin and evil. He rained down sulfur and fire on them as judgment. In Exodus 9 verse 23, we see the same kind of thing when fire ran down to the earth on Egypt for their oppression of the Israelites. So if we look at it in that way as purely just judgment, our interpretation would be and could be that Jesus 
came to pour out God's wrath to judge the people for their sin. And that in actual fact, he doesn't really want to see more people come to faith in him. It sounds like that. But I want to leave it there before I come to the conclusion. Because that is a perception that can be created. I want to jump to the second view of this. And that is the view of that when Jesus says, I've come to cast fire on this earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Let's look at it from the point of view that it could refer to his power and presence. If I could paraphrase it, it could sound like this. If Jesus, Jesus put it in different words. That he says he came to pour out or I came to pour out my fiery presence and passion on all flesh. And how I would have or would have loved to see this already taking place in the hearts of mankind. So an interpretation of that would mean that, you know what? Jesus came not for judgment yet, but to bring his power and presence so that the lives of those who had faith in him would be demonstrated through the Holy Spirit. I want to give you examples of where we get fire as an indication of God's presence. We see that in Exodus 3 verse 2 when God spoke to Moses. We see that he reveals himself to Moses in his holiness, but through, as it says there, in a flame of fire. Exodus 13 verse 21 it says that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and to lead them along the way and by night in a, in a pillar of fire to give them light. Other New Testament examples of this where we see God's presence being poured out and it coming in the form of fire is in Acts 1-4 where we see Jesus promising them the coming of his Holy Spirit. It says, And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. Jumping to verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But then we see the fulfillment of this in Acts 2. It says there in Acts 2, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So do you see the two pictures that I'm painting here of Jesus coming to cast fire and how he wishes it was already kindled? We have a view of that it could be a judgment, but also a fulfilling of um, His presence coming down. His Holy Spirit coming to empower us, to live amongst us, and to live in us. So let's see what that interpretation means. I believe that this interpretation could be on the judgment side, that it is already but not yet. Jesus came to bring judgment, but that fiery judgment is something that took place when the wrath of God was poured out onto him on the cross. So it's an already judgment from God on Jesus for our sins, so that the great exchange could take place, so that he could take the sins of the world upon him, so that we do not have to suffer that wrath. 
That is the already. But the not yet part of that judgment will come through will come through fire as Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. We see a clear indication of this judgment coming in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to 10. Paul writes there, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at, um, at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So it's an already but not yet. Already fulfilled judgment on Jesus Christ. But there is a specific purpose to that. It is so that us, we, those that put our faith in Jesus' work on the cross, can then receive His Spirit. Let's look at that. A closer look at Jesus' mission is, of course, His desire and plan for humanity. His plan is demonstrated to us in the following scripture, look at this. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that amazing? That is Jesus' desire to see people come to faith in him, to be saved. To be saved from that judgment that would come. And they're still going to come. We see this further in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. Isn't that amazing? Pray for your leaders. Pray for the prime minister. Pray for our neighboring country's president. Pray for the world leaders. How often do we do that? But we jump very quickly onto Facebook to say things that we don't like about them. But Paul encourages us, pray for these positions, these people, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And listen to this. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, isn't that an amazing picture of Jesus? Super inclusive. Inviting everyone. Everyone is welcome. But super exclusive only through Him. So I want to submit to you here at the end of this point. Jesus conquered by receiving our judgments or our judgment for our sins on the cross. But that purpose, the purpose behind that was so that His fire, His Holy Spirit could be poured out so that we can live holy devoted lives to him. I want to put up there for you, you know, the, the verse then, if we move on to it, that substantiates this view, that gives us an indication of what then Jesus is picturing for us and what he is saying to us as we look at his life. Verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Jesus says he's come to cast fire, wishes that it was already kindled, and he's come for this baptism of fire. He's come to walk through it, but he's in great distress. You know, have you ever gone through a situation or been in circumstances that puts you under such immense pressure, but you know it's something that you do have to go through? It is it's demanding so much of you in order for you to achieve something great. I want to give you this example out of my life again. When I was 18 years of age in my final year of high school graduation, my life, my life was in, in chaos. It, it was just crazy. My dad was an alcoholic, but together with that, he suffered from bipolar depression, had heart disease, was a diabetic, so... Health-wise, he was a mess, okay? Plus, he smoked almost 40 cigarettes a day. My mother diagnosed with schizophrenia. So when I was 18, at the end of my graduation year, I had to write six to eight different exams in order to finish high school. In circumstances like that. I was the youngest of five children. The four older siblings had left the house, gone to university, we're working, doing their best to help us as a family. But in September, October of 2001, things had just escalated to the point where it was like, really, it was madness. It was as if hell had broken loose in our house. Okay? Uh, my dad was experiencing severe um, anxiety. Panic attacks at night would wake me up 3 a.m. in the morning. I had, would have to rush him to the hospital. And then he would get an injection to calm him down, and they would say there's nothing wrong with him. He would fall asleep and maybe sleep a little bit. But during the day, he would be up to all kinds of uh, business endeavors, trying to make money for us as a family because we were quite poor. But he was struggling at that stage, not sleeping a lot because he was in a manic state. But it was such chaos at, such, at one point that he believed that he could move things with his mind. He would call me and he'd say, he'd, say, he'd say, Rudy, come and check this out. And we would sit at the dining room table and he would tell me, look how I'm moving things. And I'm like, what on earth is going on here? Okay? And, and this is in the midst of me having to write my exams and study. Together with that, my mom would have extreme battles in her mind with voices. It was always coinciding with her faith. Because she was an intercessor. She would be praying constantly in sackcloth and on ashes next to her bed. But what it looked like then in the early hours of the mornings is she would be going off. It, it was loud. She would be, be fighting with these voices and during the day. And I, I promise you, literally, I would sit with my ears closed like this and I would recite and I would memorize the schoolwork that I needed to know for the tests in order that I could pass those exams. Because if I didn't, if I didn't do well, if I didn't get the A's that I wanted, I would not get a scholarship or a bursary to go to university. It was chaos, okay? But at that point, I only had two choices. I could either look at the circumstances and say that this is what's going to determine my destiny and the outcome and, and I can just give up. Or the other choice was, listen, I need to get through this. I know this is, this is a fiery trial. I know this is really bad. This is horrible. And it really reached the climax when in the middle of my exams, my dad died, and he collapsed, finally. But it was a fiery trial that if I look back at it now, I would not have it any other way. 
terrible, but it shaped me, it formed me, it made me who I was, it made me who I am today, and it gave me a testimony because it is not by my own strength that I was able to do that, but it was by the grace of God. Why do I tell you this? Because I believe it is the same if we look now at Jesus' life. Jesus stood before such a situation, a baptism of fire he had to go through in order to accomplish what God had sent him to the earth for, so that we might become children of God. That was why he was so passionate. He was in distress because he was going to go and receive the punishment for our sins on the cross. But he knew what it, what it would mean. So that's why he had to go through it. So Jesus, to finalize this first point of Jesus conquering, Jesus conquered by coming, coming to bring judgment that meant that he took our penalty of, of death and being separated from God on himself in order that we might receive the Holy Spirit. That is how he conquered. But he conquered through rising from the dead. He rose from the dead to prove that he was God, to prove that what he was saying about himself was true. That's amazing. What an amazing God we serve. So he conquers in that way. Let's look at how he divides. This is now bringing us to the application part of this text. Verse 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. For from now on, one house in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You've got to understand that the context of course, in Jesus' time, was that they were awaiting the arrival of the anointed one to be king, the Messiah, the Greek Christos, but he was going to be this military figure, this person that was going to come and obliterate the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. And he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. That is what they were expecting. So they were expecting peace in that way for Israel. That is how the Messiah was going to bring peace. And Jesus knows that this is what the disciples are also still thinking, together with the other Jews. But he tells them now that actually you guys will be going through the same baptism. He knew that they were going to face the same challenges as he was uh, facing. They were going to be opposed by the religious people. They were going to be opposed by those who were against God. So the fire that he talks about in verse 49, that he wants to bring and wanted to bring and did bring out onto the earth and to those who believed in his name, they would be consumed by this fire to the extent that it brought a separation between them and those who were not for Jesus. The disciples and the apostles, they went through a division, a time of separation where they had to go through baptisms of fire in the form of persecution, having to become martyrs. 
And Jesus is not just saying that to his disciples. It's not about that they're the only ones that need to go through that. But I believe it is a division that he is calling us for as well. A baptism of fire. A division between our old life and the new life that he calls us for. A division between us and the world. Because we're in the world, but not part of the world. It is the baptism that each and every one of us have to go through to make that choice. To say, hey, but listen, I, I want to follow Jesus with everything that I have. With all my strength, with my mind, with my whole heart. Instead of saying, well, I want to stand with one foot in the kingdom of, of darkness and one foot in the kingdom of light. It's just not possible. Because that separation that Jesus bring, or brings is a separation that looks like this. It is a separation between the kingdom of the light and the kingdom of darkness. Between those who think that they can be good without God and those who know that they cannot be good without God, but they need Jesus' grace and forgiveness and His love because He loves us. The Bible says that explicitly. That is why Jesus came. For God so loved the world. question to ask yourself is how has Jesus brought a separation in your life with regards to this aspect? World, darkness versus life, light. How has Jesus brought a division and separation in the way that you think about the things that have a dominant influence in how we live our lives? I want to conclude with this by saying that the mission of Jesus Christ from the start was always so that we who were separated from God because of our sin, that we would become part of his blood-bought family, his church. Listen to me. He's not saying in that text that you need to be opposed to your biological family. It's not about that. It might be a consequence that when you put your faith in Jesus, that yes, you have family members that have your DNA, but they don't believe in Jesus. And yes, that's going to create conflict. That's going to create separation. Um, but the greatest division that he is talking about here is he's interested to know what the separation is in your life. How has the gospel separated you to be pure and holy as opposed to the world which is impure and unholy. So I'm going to end with four questions here that we can reflect on in order to allow His Holy Spirit to convict us and show us. I'm going to ask you here the first question. How do people perceive the good news of Jesus Christ through your life? Is it the real Jesus that they see through your life? Because if that's the perception they have, that perception is not, it's not false. But the question is, is the perception truth? Is it the reality of Jesus? Second question, and I've asked that, this already, but I want to be more specific. How has he created division or separation in your life with regards to how you spend your time, your money, your energy? You know, I'm convicted in this personally. Like, of late, I'm looking at 
um, our credit card statement. And if you want to know who you worship and where your allegiance lies, just look at your credit card. Where do you put your time in? Is it with the things of, of this world? Or is it with the things of God's kingdom? Third one. What is it in your life that brings you way more pleasure than Jesus? I want to submit to you that for as long as there is something in your life that brings you way more pleasure, you will live a life with the wrong perception of Him and you will reflect the wrong perception about Him. And then the last question, what is the last time that you actually experience God's fiery presence through His Holy Spirit? And maybe not the last time, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced God's love in such a powerful way that you know that you know that you just know that the Holy Spirit witnesses in your heart that this is who He is? I want to invite the, the worship band to come to the front as we ending off here and going into communion. But I want to encourage us this morning as we go into communion and take part of, of God's sacrifice on the cross through His body being crushed for us, for our sins, and His blood being poured out for our sins, I want to encourage you to seek after Him. Not to do anything or think about anything else that you have to do. It's nothing about what we can do. Just long for Him to speak to you and enjoy His presence here this morning. And I want to encourage you in this way. Forget about the people around you and how long it takes. You know, the band starts playing and then we start thinking, okay, is anyone, is anyone going to break the ice and just get up and go get the bread? Because then all of us can just go up and get the bread and the wine. And I want you to listen and sit and enjoy his presence. Sit at his feet this morning. And when you feel ready, take part in communion. If, uh, if you are not a believer, if you have not accepted Jesus' love and forgiveness for your sins, if you have never in your heart put your faith in Him, then the Bible teaches that communion is not for you. It is not for you to partake in. It is exclusively for His body. But you have the amazing opportunity here today if you have never done that if you have never acknowledged him as king and lord you have the opportunity here this morning to participate to put your faith in him and to experience his presence and his love he wants to pour it out this morning i believe he wants to do something special in us this morning in this way so yeah as the band plays let's listen to what he is saying let's listen to to his voice this morning.